The genius and power of the internet can't be overstated. This has started revolutions and shine light on the inner workings of our government. Our natural unalienable rights are now considered to be a dispensation of government. And freedom has never been so close to slipping from our grasp as it is at this moment. We also have access to information like never before. But at the same time, so much of the information is intended to deflect, confuse, and upset you. Made by people who want to profit off you or outright control you. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. All of this is exactly why we need to know history and philosophy. We need to understand where we came from so we can know where we're going. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua and today's episode will take us into the realm roughly of economics in this parallel between the time period of the Middle Ages and the Reformation and comparing that to nowadays and what's going on in modern times. This episode will be more about the Middle Ages and transitioning into the time period of the Reformation, kind of setting the stage there, and that's what we'll focus on this time. And then the next episode will be more about getting into the Reformation and the Reformation period itself and some of those parallels from an economic perspective. For a few very brief reminders before we get into this, this podcast as a whole is meant to be listened to in its entirety from start to finish. It is roughly chronological. The ideas build on each other. If you haven't listened to season one, ideally do that. If you haven't listened to all the interviews before I got into this solo content again in season two, go back and do that. Ideally, again, you follow as I go and it is intended to be followed in that way. So if you don't, you will miss on things. Technically, most episodes can be listened to on their own, but you will miss out. And so I would prefer that you didn't miss out on this stuff. That's why I do all of these episodes. And there is a reason why I schedule them out and time them out in the order that I do. So ideally, that's what you are doing. Hopefully, you are doing that. If you are not, please start doing that. Also, I have started to try to get these episodes to roughly a 30-minute time frame. That is my goal. I am definitely not achieving that every time, but I am getting much closer than I was in season one. Season one got to be pretty much like an hour minimum, and now I'm getting between 30 and 40 minutes in this part of season two. The interviews got very long, and now that I've gotten to the solo stuff, I'm getting it pretty quick. But if I'm speaking quickly and moving on very quickly, that is why I'm trying to get all this content in, give you as much as possible in a short amount of time as possible so that you can have time to actually listen to this and it doesn't take up an hour of your day. So that is why I am moving a little fast in this season and trying to get it out there. If you have opinions on that, then feel free to send them to me, ideally by using email at ourfoundations at protonmail.com. And now let's get into it. So one of the first things I wanted to mention is kind of bringing us from the fall of Rome and into the Middle Ages from an economic and class perspective one of the shifts that occurred that was kind of interesting to me and kind of stood out is the issue of slavery. So in Rome, you had these villa slaves where 
you would have a Roman villa and it would be ran by a person and a family and they would have slaves that lived there, that worked there, and they were what you would think of as slaves. At times they were treated very well, at times they were treated very poorly. Just about any civilization that has had slavery has had a mix of this. Uh, Usually there is an imbalance there. They are often treated well and occasionally treated poorly or often treated poorly and occasionally treated well, depending on the civilization and the time frame. But when we look at Rome, there was definitely a large slave class. And as Rome fell, and as the systems of Rome fell, and the economic system started to fall, and we start shifting into what we think of as the Middle Ages, the role of the Roman slave also started to change. So as the villas started to go away, the economic system started to go away, the class system of Rome started to devolve, these Roman slaves often shifted into a role of being serfs in the feudal system. So when the feudal system rose up after roughly the fall of Rome, you had this system where you had peasants who were serfs who kind of owned sections of land. They had, in a sense, rights to an area of land. They could farm it, they could work it, and they often lived in a small village with other serfs, and they would often rotate fields and rotate duties, that kind of stuff. But they basically all had sections of land that were their responsibility, and the lord of those serfs would collect taxes, so to say. They would demand a portion of the harvest for each section of land. So if I was growing a crop on an acre of land, a large portion, usually, of that crop would go to the Lord, and I would get to keep whatever remained. And that's how that system worked. So you basically did operate your own land, you did have your own home, you largely ran your own life, but you were still highly subject to the Lord, and a lot was still required of you. A lot of your labor was, in a sense, being done for the Lord themselves, not for your own benefit. And so It was this thing where you weren't necessarily a slave like the Roman villa system, but you were, in a way, a slave, more like a wage slave, like we would think of in today's world, where you still are doing a lot of your work and a lot of your labor for the sake of somebody else under their regulations, under their rules. They have a lot of say-so in what you do. You don't technically really own your land. It's not like you can do whatever you want with it. You are highly restricted there. These things should sound very familiar. That's something that we do have in today's world where you don't really own the house and the land that you are on now. The government tells you what you can and can't build there, what you can and can't demolish there, what you can and can't do from your home, what businesses you can and can't have there, You don't actually own it. You can't do whatever you want with it. The government basically owns it, and they tell you what you can and can't do, but they give you a good bit of freedom. You still have your own house. You largely run your own family, and you have a lot of choices with your own life. So it's kind of similar in that regard. It's also similar in the regard of your labor going to somebody else. So depending on what state you live in or what country you live in and how the taxes are set up there, let's say a very rough average would be that roughly 50% of your taxes often will go to the government you are under. And so this would be distributed out between things like sales tax and property tax and income tax and all of these different taxes, capital gains taxes, 
these all would add up for the average person in the average place to roughly 50%. It could be as low as maybe 20 or 30%. It could be as high as 60 or 70%, just depending on where you are, what bracket you're in, all these kinds of variables. But to make it easy, let's say it's roughly 50%. That means that half of your labor that you are performing, half of the time you spend on your job making money, that is actually for somebody else. That is not for yourself. So while you are performing your job and doing your labor and making money, earning money, you end up owing half of that to somebody else, just like it was in the feudal system with the serfs. And they would work their land, they would grow their crops, they would harvest them all for their own benefit. But no, it wasn't. They would get to keep a portion of it. And then a lot of it was deemed as owned by the Lord. And that's what they would have to pay to the Lord. And that was in exchange for their right to live on that land, to farm that land, to get at least some of the yield, and to get the protection of the Lord, which was very important. That also sounds very familiar to today. The government takes care of you. They protect you. They give you a place to live in the sense that you are actually allowed to have a house and have some property and have a lot of rights on that property. And that is thanks to the government that you pay a lot of money in exchange for all of these abilities and for this protection. So it's it's kind of this shift that gets into a system that looks fairly similar to what we have today. Although most of us don't really think of it this way, and that's not really a common perspective, there are definite parallels here. So another thing that was going on that was actually for the benefit of the surf oftentimes was that there wasn't a lot of trade between different regions and lords. It definitely did exist without a out, but it wasn't to the extent that it would be in later time periods. So as you are coming into the Middle Ages, especially the early Middle Ages, a lot of things were contained very locally and very regionally. So the Lord would get a lot of the things that they had, a lot of their food, a lot of their goods and services that were produced, they would come out of the villages of their own serfs, basically out of their own land. They would basically control a regional territory. They would have serfs in that territory farming and producing things. They would get a portion of these things, and basically their taxes were paid in kind. So it wasn't that they paid money. The serfs would pay money to the lords. That wasn't how it was set up. They would pay in kind. They would pay with the goods that they were actually producing and harvesting, and that's what the Lord would gather up. Now, with this type of system, the smaller regional areas were a lot more sustainable. They could sustain themselves fairly well. There wasn't as much of a need for trade because things weren't highly specialized, and we'll get into that in just a second. But another aspect of this was that there weren't very many storage options. So if your serfs were growing food and harvesting it and you were getting a portion of it as a lord, you can only store so much food and you can only store it for so long. There are some foods that can store for quite a long period of time. There are others that will only store for a few weeks, a few months, depending on your options, what the climate was where you were, you're very limited. So it's not like you could just build up infinite wealth by taking all of this stuff from the serfs because your wealth would spoil and that wouldn't really work out very well for you. Again, you weren't getting money that you could just hoard up and hoard up a whole room full of gold. You'd get as much as you wanted, as long as you had a big enough building to put it in. But you can't do that with 
food. You can't do that with services. You can't do that with a lot of these things. So one of the results of this was that you had lower taxes, and I use the term taxes loosely, as I'm sure you're picking up on, and you also have a lot more local independence. And so this is the system that was going on during the Middle Ages, and as you phased out of that, you started to lose a lot of these options. If you look at America, for example, and look at the colonial time period, this was a time period that the different colonies were very independent. And even getting out of that, once you had the Constitution established and get into even the 20th century, all the way through the 1900s, you had a similar aspect where a lot of times there were smaller towns, a lot of people knew everybody in the town, or a lot of people in the town at least. You knew the person you got your food from. The grocery would get a lot of their food from local farms. A lot of things were a lot more localized, and you did have a lot of barriers between technology and the access to things like refrigeration and electricity, even a lot of different things. The internet wasn't around. And so you're limited on how much trade you could do on how much you could store of different things and how long you could store it, as well as you had a lot more independence as a local entity as a small town or a small city or even a colony or a state, you grew a lot of your own food. You knew a lot of the people that produced things. There wasn't as much trade from a global or national perspective, at least compared to nowadays. Now, again, I know there was plenty of global trade as well as national trade, just like during the Middle Ages. Lords did trade with one another from very distant lands even. But when you compare the early Middle Ages to a time like the Reformation, or when you compare the early 1900s to now, there is a huge difference in these areas. And that's what I am trying to highlight here. And that's what was happening then. That is what is happening now as well. And so one of the other aspects I said I would get back to is this aspect of growing crops. They would grow all different kinds of crops. They would have all different kinds of animals. There was a lot of foraging in the woods. The woods were a very important aspect of an area of a local group of people, whether you call that a village or a lord's territory or whatever you want to call that, the woods were very important. You could forage for nuts. You foraged for mushrooms. There were lots of wild foods that grew. That's where the deer were and rabbits and squirrels, and you could go hunting. There was a lot to get from the woods. It was very important to have a lot of woods that you could use for all of these different reasons, even just getting timber to build with, lots of different things. And so you had all of those things, but then you also had your farm crops that you would grow. And so different serfs would typically be responsible for growing different things. And then between all of them, you would have a lot of the things that you need as a group of people, as a small society there. Same goes for animals. A lot of times there would be pigs, there would be sheep, there would be cows, there would be all different kinds of animals that people would be raising. There was a lot of husbandry of all different kinds. And so there was this diverse array of things that were being produced and things that were being grown and access to food of all different kinds, which would be fairly similar to, as I talk about maybe a few decades ago or a few centuries ago even, where you did have a lot of things and a lot of diverse options that were grown locally. 
just like a lot of people would have a garden. A lot of people would have pigs. A lot of people would have chickens in their backyard and have a small farm, or some of their neighbors would have farms. And oftentimes you would know who was growing what, and you would grow things, and then you'd go and you'd trade, go to a local market, things like this. This was not an uncommon thing. A lot of the guys I work with personally talk about how their parents and definitely their grandparents had a dairy cow, and they would have pigs they would raise and slaughter every year, and that would give them a lot of their meat. A lot of them would hunt for deer. A lot of the guys I work with still do. And this is a similar thing to what we're talking about here in the Middle Ages and how things were set up. But as things changed and as the economy shifted, you started to have more trade. Things started to be done in money instead of in kind. And as this happened, there was a stronger desire to build and hoard wealth, number one, and take more advantage of people because you could. You can actually store gold and money, whereas you can't really store pork as well and not nearly as long. And so with that, you had some different dynamics going on. You also had a lot more trade and trade started to extend further and further. And this long distance trade became more and more common. And so with that, you had these bigger markets, you had access to more markets, and you knew what would sell very well in those markets. So since you had access to this, you could grow what you would think of as cash crops. If you know that corn is going to sell very well and you can fetch a high price for it, and you have multiple markets you can go to, you also probably know that you can buy the things that you're not growing since you are growing corn. You would choose to grow corn. It's very profitable. You're going to grow a whole lot of corn. Then you'll just sell most of it at different markets in the regions where they have things that you want. And with the money that you get for selling all this corn, you are just going to buy things on the market that you technically could have produced yourself, but it would have been harder for you to do it. It's better if somebody else specializes in it. The idea of the Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, he talks a lot about this and specialization. This is a true aspect. It's very efficient, but it also creates some very important shifts in how local societies work and what the incentives are, different things like this. And so while during the Middle Ages and the earlier time periods, you had a more self-sustaining community that would have very diverse options for their crops and for what they would produce and what they could do, This did start to shift into specializing in certain things, into things like tax farming and taking more advantage of the common people, as well as communities that were a lot more dependent on long distance trade because they weren't growing all of their own things. You start to lose the skills. You start to lose even the ability in some areas to do things that you used to be able to do. Even if you couldn't do them as well as a far distant people could, you could at least do them if you needed to. Whereas once you become very dependent on those more, let's say, global markets, you can't really do those things as well, or you might even lose the ability to do them as a whole. And so this definitely puts you in a position where you are a lot more vulnerable as a community. We are seeing this in modern times with the COVID-19 pandemic that's going around. We have very centralized supply chains right now globally. And so there are a lot of things that are very heavily produced in China, for example, and they're not really produced anywhere else, at least not in any major quantity. So 
when you have ports shut down, you have trade shut down, you have a lot of barriers go up because of a virus that's spreading around and governments are really cracking down, this puts a kink in this very centralized supply chain. And when a supply chain is very centralized and you are very reliant on these global markets to get the things that you need, that causes some major disruptions. And there's not much you can do about it because that's the way the economic system is set up. It's not set up for local entities to be a lot more self-sufficient where if there's a kink in the supply chain, it's not really that big of a deal. You have to pay a little bit more money. You might have to get somebody to convert to doing X instead of Y, something like that. But it's fairly easy to do. It's a lot more localized. And no, it's not as efficient. And no, it's not even always as effective. But it is a lot more resilient and a lot more sustainable. And so these are some things that are being highlighted even in modern times in the time period of this recording right now. It's the same idea of doing monoculture farming versus something like a perennial permaculture system or setup, where with monoculture, you have one crop that you are growing in a vast abundance in a giant field and you have rows and rows and rows and rows of, let's say, corn. And that is all that you do. And you have this giant farm with nothing but corn. You're using all kinds of fertilizer to replenish the soil. You are spraying all kinds of chemicals on it to keep the pests out. Because just think about it. If you have one pest that is going to take out your corn, you have acres, hundreds of acres of corn, it wipes out your entire crop and there's nothing you can do about it. So you have to make sure that you don't have any pests that come in because they will wipe you clean. So a lot of times you need to, or farmers feel like they need to, use some very strong chemicals to keep all the pests away, a lot of strong fertilizers to make sure they're producing a lot and you're building the soil back up, and lots of things of this nature. Whereas if you are thinking of a more perennial or at least more of a permaculture approach, the idea is that you have a diverse array of plants. You have corn, you have wheat, you have apple trees and pear trees, you have cherry trees, you have blueberries, you have so many different things. They're interspersed amongst each other. And it's not just that, but you have animals. And so you might run your cows through a pasture before you plant and then run the chickens behind them to scratch up the manure. They also eat the maggots where, you know, of course, flies will lay their eggs in the manure. You don't want thousands of flies swarming your farm, you run the chickens through there, they eat a lot of the maggots, and that solves one problem, as well as they scratch it up, stir up the soil. Hey, that helps out as well. Maybe you run the sheep through there as well as they eat up a lot of the weeds, or if you plant a, a cover crop, maybe they'll eat up that cover crop, and then their bodies will process that and leave fertilizer on the ground. And you can get lots of systems like this, where the chickens, for example, might be eating a lot of the pests that might harm your foods. Maybe in your orchards, you just always have your chickens running around. That's what I do at my house. We have chickens, and they run around in the orchard area, and they're always there. So as food fruit falls and hits the ground. We are not going to eat it. It's rotting. It's no good. The chickens eat it. So it's not going to waste. They are getting healthier and getting lots of really good nutrients. They are picking up after us. They are getting a lot of the bugs and the insects that might hurt our fruit trees. We also actually run two pigs through the area that we have our fruit trees. And so they will till up the soil for us and they will root around and till it up. Then the chickens come through and they can eat a lot of the grubs and the things that are unearthed by the pigs. They're both giving us fertilizer for free all over our ground and then mixing that in with the soil. It's not enough 
there aren't enough animals, at least, to cause much harm to our system. Technically, they might be able to, but with just two pigs and a flock of chickens, the way we have it set up on our land, it works really well. Now, the catch here is that if someone just raises pigs, even in a pastured setting, they can do that a lot more efficiently than I can. If someone's just raising meat birds, chickens, or just raising chickens for eggs, or if they are just doing orchards and growing fruit, whatever the case may be, they can do that a lot more efficiently than the system that we have set up here. But our system works very well for what it is. It's not as efficient. It's not as effective, but it is very healthy. It is very sustainable. It is very simple, so to say. And comparably to a monoculture agricultural system, it is a lot easier and it is much better for the environment, much better for the soil and produces a lot better and healthier food. And so on just about every account in my book, that's much better. That's what I want to be eating. That's what I want to be growing. That's what I want to rely on. I don't want to be dependent on a very highly centralized, uh, poisonous, a lot of times, system and food like that. That's not what I want. But my point is just that these are a lot of the things that we are living with in today's world. And there are definitely parallels to economic shifts and systems that were going on through the Middle Ages. And as they centralize, we have a lot of similar aspects. You could even have kind of fun with this example and say that the way animals are raised nowadays is not very humane. They are caged. They are kept in a small area. They're confined. They're muzzled. They're fed food that's highly infused with different chemicals given all these different shots of all these antibiotics and all kinds of different things that aren't really very healthy for them. They are conditioned for maximum management potential where they're very easy to work with and their systems, their cages and the setup to go from their stall to the slaughterhouse. All of these things are set up in such a way that it makes it very easy. It's very easy for the farmers to manage. And this is the system that most animals are raised in in today's world under today's systems. The fun part is to interpose that onto the systems that we have today in places like schools and the situation we have with something like COVID-19 and stuff like this, where people are caged in a sense. You go to one place, you can't really leave, you have to stay in this building for a certain amount of time. There are systems set up at your work, at your school, wherever you are, that make it much more easier to manage you as a person and you are uh, with COVID-19 you are also even muzzled with your mask at all times and you are highly sanitized your environment is highly sanitized you are shot up with all of these different things that you know some of them may be good for you some of them may not I'm not getting into the vaccine argument I've mentioned that before but there are plenty of examples here if you want to have fun with the idea of how animals are raised in today's world and how people are farmed in today's world as well. Moving on from that aspect of the economic systems there and other systems of control, we can look at how the economic system developed through the Middle Ages. One of the key things that happened from 
a more institutional aspect is that guilds popped up and began to have a lot of control over local economies. They were these entities that were not governments, but they also weren't just local towns. They were systems and institutions that cropped up in an economic world in the workplace and had a lot of impact in how people worked and how markets worked and all this kind of stuff. This I compare to the union system that was very popular. Unions used to have a huge say in the marketplace in, let's say, the early 1900s, for example. And that was a major factor in the economy. Well, historically, as you got into this growing merchant class that started to come up and gain more power, gain more wealth, gain more control, you have a similar thing happen in modern times where you have these entrepreneurs that come up and they start these corporations and they have uh, more control, they have more say, they get more wealth, and the influence of unions starts to fade, just like the influence of the guild system started to fade and the rise of the merchant class started to come up. And in a lot of ways, they started to replace the roles that the guilds had played in society, just like the entrepreneurs and corporations that started to grow up through the 1900s, a lot of times started to replace the roles that were being played by the unions. And there was this overlap. It wasn't this clear thing. And this wasn't the only factor. It's not like because the merchants rose up, that's why the guilds failed. Or because entrepreneurs started to come up, big corporations started to grow in wealth and power. Therefore, the unions started to go away. That's not necessarily the case. But these two things did influence each other. And there is a correlation between what happened then with that system and what happened uh, now, or roughly now, with this system. And so largely, unions do not have a huge role to play in society. It was the entrepreneurial class and the corporate world that rose up and now has a lot more say in markets and in the way the economy functions, the way work is done, the way work is thought of, the way work is organized, the way regulations are influenced. That's done more on a corporate level now than on a union level. And a similar thing happened, shifting from the feudal system into guilds having more power and control into having this merchant class rise up and have a lot more influence. Again, these things happened in similar ways. Other things that happened with these shifts were that when you go from feudalism to more of a mercantile system-ish, you have this shift from the local-centric view to a more national view. You have a shift from a system that is a lot more decentralized to a lot more centralized, something that is much more sustainable and self-sufficient, a lot more self-reliant, to a system that is much more reliant on the system itself and on the markets themselves, a system that is not really able to take care of itself as individual parts and pieces. All the parts and pieces need to work together in order for everything to work and everyone to get what they need. That is the shift that took place. And we see the same thing happening in today's world. I don't even think I have to play out these parallels. It's very obvious here. For the individuals, you had serfs that were loyal and reliant to the Lord, just like in modern times, you have citizens that are loyal and reliant to their nation, 
to their government, this sense of national pride that was very strong, especially in the early 20th century. And you also have the same thing in a more economic setting in the workplace. You have company men that are very loyal and reliant on their company. And they worked for this company for the entirety of their career, oftentimes built up a pension. They were reliant on that pension to sustain themselves after retirement. And there were shifts, though, as things started to change, just like as you went from serfs that were reliant to their lords to peasants that were much more reliant to the new economic system and the new government systems that were starting to pop up and things that were much more city-centric and trade-centric rather than these more independent local regions ran by lords under this old feudal system, a similar thing starts to happen where in today's world, it used to be that you just had citizens that were very reliant and loyal to the government. In today's world, you still definitely have patriotism all around the world. But people are so much less trusting and less proud of their politicians and of their government all around the world than they were even just a few decades ago. And as far as reliance goes on their government, a lot of that has shifted over to the corporate world and the private world. They do get a lot from their government, but individuals are looking to their companies and to their careers to provide a lot more for them, whereas people focused strictly on the government and had more, I don't want to say stagnant careers, but more steady careers that were oftentimes at one place or in one field. There wasn't a lot of change. It wasn't very dynamic. Whereas in today's world, people are bouncing around to different companies. They're even shifting their fields. They're shifting their jobs all the time. And all of these things they are using the system to get what they need to build wealth for all of these types of things. And they're more reliant on that than on the government itself to take care of all these things. But at the same time, whereas people used to be reliant on one single company or corporation to really take care of them, to go through their entire career, to be a company man kind of a thing and take care of them in retirement, nowadays people are filling that role actually with the government and with the state, with things like the welfare state that's cropped up and they rely on the government for things like social security and medical insurance and all kinds of things that used to be something that were not necessarily in the purview of the government. And so it's interesting how these dynamics change. People still are reliant on the government, but in different ways. They are still loyal to their nation, but in different ways. They are still definitely involved in the workplace, but that looks different now than it used to. And it's the same in many ways as it was in the Middle Ages, where these things started to change and people were still involved in growing food and providing goods and services in trading amongst each other. It just changed in what that looked like and how that operated. People still were reliant on their government, so to say. It went from the Lord to more of a larger regional bureaucracy, and that definitely had some major shifts and changes that happened there, but it was still people that were reliant on somebody else to protect them and to provide for them in exchange for their loyalty and taxes of one kind or another. And even what that looked like changed over time. And so all of these things look very similar. And we need to be aware that things aren't stagnate. It's not like this system that we live in today is the way things will always be. 
it's constantly shifting and it can shift in very interesting ways and different ways. And even when it seems like it's shifting in a very positive way, such as having more global trade and centralizing certain things so that we can get them cheaper, we can get them more efficiently, we can get two-day shipping on an item that's $5 that used to be $20 that you couldn't get for two weeks. But the problem is that when there is a kink in that system, all of a sudden you're screwed and there's nothing you can do about it. And so there are some major flaws there. And it's not necessarily that one system or one set of conditions is better than another or worse than another. There are always pros and cons. There are always things that are better and there are always things that are worse in both systems. And so what we can do and what I would promote doing is to be aware of what these different systems are and what they have been historically and how things have shifted and how they are shifting now and what are the weaknesses and what are the strengths of the system we are in now as well as what does it look like we are shifting into? What are some of these shifts that are occurring and what will be the strengths and weaknesses of what we are getting into versus what we are in now? And a lot of that we can see by looking at where we have been in historical time periods that are very similar to things we're going through today. So hence the whole reason for season two being this parallel between this time period that I view as very similar in so many ways to what we're going through today, this time of the Reformation, and comparing that to modern times and modern shifts. That is the reason for all this. It should be something that is beneficial and practical in many different ways. With that, I will wrap up this episode by saying thank you very much, especially to the Patreon members that are supporting this podcast financially. Thank you for those of you who have left ratings and reviews. I actually haven't checked the reviews recently. It's been a month, maybe more. And so I'll get on there and check. And if there are any new ones, I will give you a shout out on the next episode, assuming I don't forget to check that. And so thank you, whether I check it soon or not. And whether I give you a specific shout out or not, I do greatly appreciate it. Thank you very much for taking the time to uh, just click the stars or write a brief review. It's very helpful and encouraging for me and for others who might be interested in this podcast as well. Thank you for listening, no matter who you are and what you have done or haven't done. Just thank you for being here and checking out this episode, checking out the podcast, hopefully listening to all of the podcast, as I said at the beginning. And please come back next time as we get into some more of these more economic-focused aspects of markets and business and these different shifts in society getting from the Middle Ages to the time period of the Reformation. And as always, feel free to contact me if you have any questions, any feedback, any requests any disagreements, please feel free anytime you want. All of the links should be in the show notes for the website, for the email address, Twitter account, Patreon page, all the different stuff. So see that if you are interested. Thank you again for listening. I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.